I don't know if we can sing any better news than that. He's risen. He's alive. Amen. If we haven't met yet, I'm, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm honored to serve here. Uh, let me just say quickly, in a church this size, with multiple services and, and sites, we make an intentional effort not to add a whole lot of announcements to this time, to our worship time. Uh, Devin does a fantastic job of making you aware of things that are going on, current events, ministries, things like that. And uh, make sure you read those emails, make sure you stay up on those, watch the slides. Uh, but I also want to keep you up on some bigger picture things. So I understand this has been a source of frustration in the past and that sort of thing. So one of the things that uh, my goal is to open the lines of communication, keep you aware of things. Whether you realize it or not, maybe you haven't read your emails, but I do have time blocks set aside in my calendar to meet with any of you who would like. So if you would like to do that, some of you have already, it's been a neat time to meet with you. Uh, it gives me a chance to hear your testimony or maybe hear your concerns or things like that. You can ask me questions, any question you want. I won't necessarily answer it, but you can ask it. <laughs> but if you'd like to do that, let me know. If you don't, I will be offended uh, and I may get over it at some point. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Main thing I wanted you to know is that this past week, our, our staff took time to evaluate ministries. We took time to, to consider where Parkview has been, what Parkview has done, and what Parkview is currently doing. We talked about some of our, what our struggles might be, what our strengths might be, what our opportunities might be. What a neat time it was. And I will tell you, only having been here six months or so, I learned things this week about Parkview I didn't know. I learned about ministries that I, I didn't even realize existed. And praise God for all that he's doing here at Parkview. Praise God for what he's going to do and for what he has done. Uh, I just wanted you to know that. Uh, that's going to lead to some strategic planning meetings. We have some different uh, ones that we're going to do at different times to help set the course for the days ahead for Parkview. To be really candid, the, uh, the bad news that I bring you today is that even though giving was really good in December, we're still tracking behind for our fiscal year of giving, and so that's a prayer concern for ours. We want to be as faithful as we can in our planning and in our spending to be uh, good stewards of that. But we need you to come behind us. We need you to come behind us in prayer and in cheerful and sacrificial giving. You'll be blessed. Finally, just a, one of the ways to stay current with what's happening at Parkview is to attend the congregational meetings. They happen quarterly, and so we encourage you to come to those. If you're not a member, you can't vote on certain things, but we certainly give you a chance to know what's going on. On a personal note, there's a vicious rumor going on that my family and I missed the last two Sundays because we went south into 80-degree weather. It's a vicious, vicious rumor because obviously if I was doing that, I would have invited all of you. And you, since you didn't get an invitation, it must not have happened. Never mind the tans. Anyway, uh, as a family, we hated to miss the past couple Sundays, but we did not hate being in 80-degree weather, I will be honest. But it's good to be back with you. And not only are we back, we're back now into the book of Acts. We've been out of it for Christmas and for a few other things. And, uh, but now it's time to get back into it. Special thanks to Pastor Dave for his two messages on holiness, looking at Isaiah and 1 Peter.
I'm sure you were greatly challenged by those messages. From today's text, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. We'll see both the methods and messages that Paul delivered to the people of Athens. We see Paul's pain when he considers the city in response to their condition. Paul's desire was to bring knowledge of the gospel into a confused and lost culture. The great minds of Athens were powerless to find the answers apart from seeking after truth through faith in Jesus Christ. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts. If you remember back uh, last year, Pastor Thomas spoke the first portion of Acts 17. We looked at the Thessalonians' riotous response. We looked at the contrast to that to uh, the Berean church and their noble response to the word, receiving the word with eagerness and examining the scriptures daily. Now, in this second part of chapter 17, we see Paul in the third city, the city of Athens, some 200-mile journey from Berea. And let's read today's text. We're going to start in verse 16. Before we do that, I want you to listen for a few words. I want you to listen for words like know, reason, meaning, telling, hearing, perceive, and think. I think it'll help you grasp a little bit more of what's happening here. Let's look at that together. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we move, live and move and have our being, 
even as one of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among those were Dionysus, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this chance to be together like this, this chance to focus in on you, to to give you all of our time and attention, to come before you in worship, to declare the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. Father, we thank you that we have uh, our East Campus, and we ask your blessing upon them today as they they meet him. Father, may your spirit just move mightily there as well. Father, help us to see what we need to see, to hear what we need to hear, and respond appropriately. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The apostle is now in the famous city of Athens, the city of Plato, of Socrates, of Aristotle, and others. Like Oxford of the 19th century, Athens was the intellectual center of the world filled with culture, arts, religion, and philosophy. There are really two predominant sections that I want us to focus in on today. In each of them, we find both the city's impact on Paul and Paul's impact on the city through the power of God. While we work our way through these sections, I'd like us to notice some very practical things today, uh, specifically about evangelism. We, We see a lot going on here, but we really see some very key things that a good evangelist does, one who shares their faith. Again, I remind you about our uh, Bless Every Home website. We encourage you to jump in on that. Get in the habit of praying for your neighbors and preparing to share the good news with them. Here from this, we see in Paul's pain, we see uh, the spirit-led side of that. Look with me at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Some of you are wondering if I'm reaching here to say that it's the Holy Spirit. Isn't, isn't this his own spirit? Paul certainly has demonstrated that he, he leads a life that is surrendered to the Lord's leading. The fact that his spirit is provoked with him uh, by the spiritual condition of the city further suggests that this is the Holy Spirit. The status of Athens has an impact on Paul. His spirit is provoked within him. Paul enters the intellectual arena of Athens and he's overtaken by how lost they are. Paul knows that Jesus provides the answers that they so desperately seek and debate. He's bothered by what he sees. Does this remind you of anybody else in the New Testament being looking at the city and being upset? In Luke chapter 19, we have Jesus looking upon Jerusalem 
In verse 41, it says, And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I, I believe we see a similar heart here within Paul. His pain for Athens. It's from God. This is godly. This is a Holy Spirit-driven response for Paul to feel this way about Athens. Otherwise, why would he care? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, certainly there are times when your heart breaks over the lost. On our vacation, there were times when I just sat and observed people. And I found myself just praying, oh Lord, that they would know. Oh Lord, that they would see something different. That the opportunity would come for them to hear and to respond. So the evangelist is spirit-led. Second, the evangelist is observant. He's observant. Verse 16, saw. If you have New American Standards, saying beholding that the city was. These are where we get our words, uh, word for, the the, for theater. He saw that the city was full of idols. A traveler by the name of Pisinius came to Athens some 50 years after Paul, and he wrote extensively about Athens. He was impressed by the magnificent city, its, its beauty, and the art. And he said of Athens that it was easier to meet a god there than a man. And the reason was there were some 30,000 idols or statues of gods, and there was only 10,000 people in the city. He's observant. In verse 22, he says, I perceive. In verse 23, he says, I observe, I found. An evangelist is, is observant and aware of the culture in which he or she serves. I, I believe this includes being attentive to individuals, to people. And not every situ situation is visual. He's talking about what he saw. But sometimes evangelism requires not just seeing, but also hearing. Do we listen? I, I think too often that we Christians do not share Christ well because we do not listen well. We're too worried about what we're going to say. And we're not aware of what's really going on. Observant. Third, I, I, I see that he shows no favoritism. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Here we see Paul's first response to, to the city and to him being provoked by their condition. So he goes to the synagogue and there he he shares with those who are devu, uh, de, Jews or devout. Don't mix those words. It doesn't sound right. Uh, they're God-fearing people. And this was Paul's pattern, right? He would go to the synagogue, and then he would go and, and share with everyone else, the Gentiles. But notice, he's also, every day, Luke tells us, in the marketplace with those who happen to be there. 
I, I just imagine him working his way through the marketplace, and maybe he just buys a little bit here and buys a little bit there, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm kind of new to this city. Tell me, tell me what's, what's with all the statues, and which God do you believe in? Can I tell you about mine? He shows no favoritism. Many years back, I came to a place in my own personal faith where I realized that I had not, there was no marketplace left in my life. In the pastoral ministry, all my connections were Christian. I was interacting with church people all the time. And the Lord led me to to do a radical change in my schedule and and where I did did my business and where I went so so that I could encounter those who needed to hear the good news of Christ. And that's led to people coming to faith over the years, and I give praise to God for that. Also, the Stoics and the Epicureans didn't matter which position they were in. The Epicureans uh, made seeking happiness and pleasure the central focus of their life. They were the eat, drink, and be merry people. They believed that everything happened by chance. The Stoics were, were opposite of that. They believed that the gods controlled everything. They lived by law and not according to emotion or feeling. They were pantheistic and saw everything as controlled by the gods. Didn't matter. Paul shared with them all. And finally, we see from the last verse in our passage that men and women alike, he showed no favoritism. Before we continue the next section of Scripture, uh, let's take note of the city's response to Paul. Look at verse 18. Now, some of you are worried that I'm only on verse 18. Don't worry, we'll get there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be preaching, uh, be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. When they called him a babbler, that was not a compliment. It really meant seed picker. And the idea was that he didn't have any harvest or thought of his own. He was just picking up little ideas and putting them all together. Some, Sometimes people would walk through the marketplace and pick up what's on the ground, and, and, you know, and that, that was the idea here. It was an insult to him. Then saying he was a preacher of foreign divinities, it was because he was teaching Jesus and the resurrection. That was a very foreign thought to them to even think of that concept. Can I just make this quick side note? The gospel presentation must include the resurrection. We're just saying it. He is risen. He is risen. He's alive. It's got to include that. Paul writes to the the church in Corinth in his first letter, chapter 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. That's the gospel. Do not leave the resurrection out of the story. It's essential to it. They took him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. Now, this was the the hill, the Council of Ares. This was, uh, the Latin for it was Mars Hill. The site can be visited today. Quite an honor to be there, most likely. I don't think we should read this as a violent action that they took him out of the marketplace and dragged him violently by the arm there. I don't think that is the case. In the past, they had been very aggressive and even killing Socrates, right? But 
this would have been more likely an invitation and perhaps even an honor to go and do this. But I want you to note that they sought to know what those things meant, specifically about Jesus and the resurrection. They were all about the telling and hearing of something new, right? It says that right in the, in the text. So here in this place of honor, Paul gets to proclaim to them the gospel. See, he was impacted by the city and its condition, and the city then responds to him in really either by insulting him or seeking more from him. That's the impact thus far. In, in the second section, starting in 22 here, we see Paul's second response and how the city responds. Look with me at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Before we go into any more depth here, I want you to notice also that the evangelist is kind and conciliatory. He, he, he doesn't take this opportunity to speak to them and say, you idiots. Really? 30,000 statues? You, you, you are so confused, you know nothing. He doesn't insult them. He makes an effort to be kind in confronting their confusion, their idolatry, and their foolishness. He doesn't insult them. Rather, he keys in on their need. And I would suggest an evangelist is also direct. Someone who shares their faith needs to be direct. He says, I see that you are very religious. See, objects of worship everywhere. And, and I particularly notice the one to an unknown God. Paul sees an open door to address their need for clarity. Unknown is the root from where we get our word agnosticism. The view or belief that God is unknown or unknowable. Or agnosticism without knowledge. He's saying, I perceive that you even have an altar to someone who's unknown. Now, theories exist as to why this would have been there, but I would suggest to you, certainly at its root, would have likely been fear. The worship of the gods and the idols was essentially transactional in nature in their minds. The idea was that you worship the various gods, you're giving them what they needed or what they sought, what the gods needed or what the gods sought, so that they would be good to you. So where would fear come in? If, if the God is unknown, then, then how can you possibly grant that God what he or she desires? It's unknown. So the fear is that you're missing some crucial element of worship. Certainly they were trying to cover all the bases. And Paul masterfully uses this as an open door. Paul responds to them, and notice now that he uses theology, philosophy, and religion 
in his response. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. He gives them theology. God as creator, the one who made the world and everything in it, He's he's explaining where God really exists in comparison to their gods. And he's saying, listen, as a result, you cannot contain him in a temple, or you cannot depict him with, with some medals. This was a challenge to that audience. Greek gods had limitations. They were finite. And Paul presents here an infinite, uncreated God, omnipresent. Mind-blowing for them. He's giving them theology. Not served by human hands. He cannot be bribed. There's no need that he can be bought with. He himself is the provider. Twenty-six and twenty-seven. He's the sovereign governor of the universe. Yet, he can be sought out and found. How opposite from their altar to an unknown god. He can be known. What does he say? Yet he is actually not far. From each one of us. These Epicureans and Stoic philosophers considered their gods unwilling to get involved in the lives of humanity. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice the increased mixture of philosophy now in there and religion. He even quotes their own poets in those two phrases. But now he's, he's speaking of, about it in terms of God, not about Zeus or any other God. He says, listen, he, he gives life and we are his offspring. And, and notice the philosophy he's saying, now therefore we cannot reduce God to gold. We can't reduce him to silver. We can't reduce him to stone or some image or creation of man. 
Our very existence comes from His, so then how could we reverse that? We would most certainly degrade Him to do so. And in so doing, degrade our very selves. That culture would not have struggled with the idea of God's being greater. This must have been fascinating for them to consider. But notice that he kind of takes a shift here, and he's getting toward the religious side of it here. And listen, he's saying, time's up. God used to overlook this ignorance. But now you must repent. An evangelist knows that there's a time to call for a response. The response is to repent. The idea of repentance is to to, to turn away, to change your direction. You were going this way, but turning away, now going back toward God. He calls for a a repentance. And, And who? All people everywhere. Why? Judgment is coming. Don't forget that. Judgment is coming. Who? Jesus will be the judge. And the proof, by the way, Paul says, he's the resurrected one. The resurrected Christ will be the judge, and that judgment is coming. Look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Notice the impact or the response on the part of the city. Some mocked, some stalled, and some believe. Some mock, some stall, some believe. Sadly, even when the truth is presented, Not all will respond. It's a hard thing, isn't it? Remember Jesus talking about the wide road and the narrow road, the gate? This is only a few find it. As I wrap up, I want to consider now our relevance as it pertains to our culture today, the relevance of this passage. Certainly, we see here that confusion about these matters is not new. It's not new. Here in Iowa City, it's an intellectual culture, isn't it? Many ideas, many thoughts, philosophies, they're all shared here. And there are many who are lost and confused. There are many who need clarity. Maybe stop for a second and think about what are, what are the gods 
We're idols of our culture today. Certainly achievement can be an idol. The whole intellectualism can be an idol. Certainly we see the drive for materialism and things. I believe sports, if not kept in check, can become idolatry. You can add to the list. How should we respond when we see the confusion that people have about God, about life? I think Paul sets a wonderful example here. First of all, being led by the Spirit, observing, paying attention, not being favoritistic about it, sharing with any who will hear, but doing it with kindness, being direct, and realizing that there is a point to call for a response. G. Campbell Morgan says a very heavy thing on this subject. It's weighty. He writes, Where are the Christian men and women of the city? We shall find them and know them by the paroxysm of their unrest. If there be no paroxysm, no force, no agony, no heartbreak, no sacrifice, they are not Christians. And that, that's heavy, isn't it? If our heart isn't broken by the condition of the lost people around us, he, he's, he's questioning your faith. He's questioning whether or not you actually believe it, if it means anything to you at all. And the idea being that we who are in Christ should be so thankful and so filled with gratitude that we're heartbroken about the people that don't know the good news that we know. We should be generous in sharing the truth. Are you pained over the people you see who are lost? Does it provoke your spirit? People in our world today are just as lost and confused as they were in Athens. We who are in Christ should let our gratitude for the ones who shared Christ with us drive us to be people who boldly and lovingly proclaim Christ even in intimidating situations. Would you join me as I pray? Father, I pray that you would just take these words and use them in hearts and lives here. Lord, maybe there's someone here who's never invited Jesus to be their Savior, that even in this moment, they would acknowledge their sin and cry out in their hearts for Christ to be Lord, the resurrected one who brought victory. Father, we thank you that we sing about our Jesus who's risen and is alive because we know that in him we have eternal life through faith in him. And Father, we're grateful. 
We're grateful to be ones who know the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, may that gratitude drive us to be ones who share the good news of Jesus Christ. May we be people who invite others to come along and behold the wondrous mystery who is Christ, our Lord. Amen.